When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me for The Bigger Picture, where I am joined by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, we're going to try and talk about three different topics today. Where are you going to begin I think we've got to start in Scotland because, of course, the cause for Scottish independence, um, well, it it, it actually goes back, if you think about it, uh, not over just recent decades or various parts of the 20th century, but actually those tensions between Scotland and England and the rest of the UK go back over many centuries. Hmm. But who could have imagined that the modern form of Scottish nationalism and its vehicle, the Scottish National Party, would effectively have the leader felled by um, such a remarkable issue um, relating to gender politics. I, uh, you know, I think you have to sympathise with um, Scottish nationalists um, who may indeed have a worthy cause, but who could have imagined that so many of their hopes and dreams would be dashed on the rocks of 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 um, of a rather tragic debate around transgender and and rape and prisons and all the rest of it. But it's happened. And what you're starting to see, I think, is a diminution of the uh the the support for um the for, for independence for Scotland, but you're also seeing a resurgent Labour Party. And Labour are, are now, I think, clearly targeting probably around 15 seats. They hope, I think they expect they can win um, at the next election. Um, and you know, the Labour Party's leader um, in Scot- Scotland, Anna Samwa, who's been around for some time, is probably the best known now uh, politician up there. Um, and, you know, recognition uh, really matters uh, at elections. And it matters when people are hovering with their pencil in the, in the polling booth. Mm. So I think Labour could really do quite well up there. Because the SNP have had two very charismatic and popular leaders, whereas certainly down south, many people probably couldn't name many of the other people in the SNP um, position of authority. So do you don't think any of the SNP potential candidates are likely to acquire the stature of Sturgeon or Salmond? Well, even if they you know, are able between now and the next election to get some sort of recognition. And I think the SNP's election process is itself quite long-winded. They, the, the new candidate won't be declared for for some time. But if, still, you know, still probably faster than the Conservatives, though. Well, I'm, no doubt. <laughs> yes, but yes. but, but um, uh, even you know when they're declared, they're going to have quite an uphill struggle. And that's not just the issue of recognition. It's also the fact that the SNP have been in power for a long time now. And... I think a very objective assessment is when it comes to healthcare in Scotland or education or law and order, mm. you know, 
the SNP have not done well. And of course, the problem there is they have the problem of incumbency. They've been around a long time. And um, one of the most scary things, you see this for the Conservatives um, in the UK, and of course, the majority of their support comes from England, but you're certainly seeing it with the SNP in Scotland. An awful lot of voters, particularly less ideologically inclined voters, start to think, well, they've been in power a long time. Isn't it time for a, a change? And that 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 feeling of time for a change can hand um, an opposition party a pretty powerful psychological card. Um, you know, it, it gets to the point where it, it it develops a sense of inevitability that that, that, that the ruling party mm. is on its way out. So I think Labour. Uh, maybe right, maybe wrong, but they feel resurgent. One of the interesting things about that is, of course, um, Scotland, traditionally and historically, you know, the canny Scots, a country known for its thrift, um, people saving, uh, counting the pennies, investing, a home of a lot of the Enlightenment. We think of the Scottish Enlightenment, we think of Hume, we think of Adam Smith, we think of the great scholars and practitioners of Scottish medicine, at the end of the 18th and uh, throughout the 19th century. What's really interesting to me about this is how actually the Conservative Party used to do very well in Scotland, and then Margaret Thatcher came to power, and that relationship between, you know, sort of thrifty free market conservatism um, and the Conservative Party fractured, she was just too extreme for them, interestingly, um, and how... The SNP gained in popularity, but maybe we're now seeing a turning of the tide. And maybe, um, uh, and the opinion polls are showing this, they are increasingly showing it, that um, that as there's a, a very gentle sort of resurgent Labour Party, so actually the numbers favouring Scottish mm. independence are now moving very much in favour of the union. Of course, the Labour Party, like the Conservative Party, is a unionist party. How important for Labour is it going to be to pick up more seats in Scotland? I mean, aren't they destined, if the polls are to be believed, for a majority anyway? Well, if if there was an election tomorrow and, and, and the polls remain tomorrow as they have done for quite a few months, you're absolutely right. Uh, Labour would win and they wouldn't need Scotland. But on the working assumption that maybe in the latter part of this year, certainly next year the economy picks up a bit and maybe... Mm -hmm hopefully public finances improve, maybe there'll be tax cuts, um, then the likelihood is that the polls could narrow. There are also, of course, um, some advantage built in um, because of some boundary changes that are coming through, built in for the Conservatives, that is. Conservatives may benefit by eight or ten seats. So as the polls narrow, it could be the case that, um, that Labour um, need to win seats elsewhere. Mm. And of course, the natural place for them to look, because they've done quite well in Wales, but the natural place for them to look is Scotland. So assuming the polls narrow, uh, they remain ahead, but they're narrow, then they're going to really, really need yes. uh, to pick up these seats in Scotland. Yes. That's where Scotland could become make or break for yes. Keir Starmer in 2024. It, intriguing to see that Starmer was, is wooing the, the farming and country lobby. I mean, how things change. You think that tends to be uh, in England, at any rate, the uh, Conservative territory, but it looks as if um, Labour are hoping that they can actually pick up um, votes there as well. Yes, and, and, and uh, you also find people like Wes Streeting, uh, who um, are, are are talking an increasingly Tony Blair script 
on things like healthcare. You know, it's where streeting is dead. We're going to have to work with the private sector, like Tony Blair did, etc. So Keir Starmer, I think, uh, has taken Labour into serious electoral opportunity, uh, but he's doing it by doing what Tony Blair did, which is simply out-triangulating the Conservatives, and he's building bridges with constituencies that he's going to have to win if he's going to be the Prime Minister. Mm. Uh, Tim, okay, uh, time to give you just a, a little moment or two to catch your breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what's our second topic, please? The second topic is uh, the state of British Railways. Uh, British Railways, one of the great yo-yos of of British politics. Um, Every few decades, there is some uh, change of ownership or there's some great lurch from one political perspective, uh, a method of management and practice to another. Of course, the railways in the 19th century uh, in this country uh, were developed and grew rapidly um, uh, under the aegis of of the private sector. Um, The great companies like the LMS, London Midland Scottish, you know, God's Wonderful Railway, (laughs) the Great Western Railway, um, LNER, all the others. Um, And and I guess from that, that private sector perspective, the high point of British Railways was actually in the Edwardian period. It was probably around 1905. I have to say, when when the railways came into bloom in the latter half of the 19th century, they upset an awful lot of investors, um, uh, particularly people who had poured money into the canal system. Mm, and, of course, yes, the canals yes. um, uh, were, in a, in a sense, the, the modern technological predecessor to the railways. Well... In the 1960s, uh, Dr. Beeching did his thing and the railways uh, were very extensive across the United Kingdom, but in many ways they were not profitable. Really by the 1920s, 1930s, the private railway companies were no longer profitable. The government nationalised the railways in the late 40s. They remained unprofitable. And by 1963, there was a crisis and Beeching intervened. And of course, an awful lot a railway line was pulled up, an awful lot of stations were closed. I mean, the order of 6,000 um, uh, stations, about uh, about a third of the country's mm. railway stations were closed. And he was a great statistician, he was a great analyst. You know, he thought that uh, he would turn the railways around. He had thousands of miles of railway down and, 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 and thousands of stations. Well, then, of course, Margaret Thatcher becomes prime minister. And, and certainly under John Major, uh, the railways are semi-privatised. Um, government did for a while re- retain a degree of control and continue to retain control over the track. Uh, but uh, there were new tenders and, and new bidders for new lines and franchises. Well, there was a bit of a boom. Um, subsidies from taxpayers remained 
but the whole thing has got into trouble again. And um, where we're at today is that we have a Conservative government uh, who is bringing in a new organisation called Great British Railways. They're going to be some sort of uh, intermediary body between the the, the semi-nationalised owners of the track and the um, and these heavily uh, regulated um, franchise owners. And, and there's going to be new new uniformity rules put across the whole system, etc. But of course, since COVID, the numbers of users have collapsed. And the railways are really, the economics around the railways, the finance is really getting into hot water. The numbers of people using them have plummeted. Um, as technology blooms, people are able to work more from home. And one starts to wonder if what is happening to the railways, um, uh, you know, is that which the railways did to the canals, i.e. what the really big story here is of course the railways have been in trouble. And of course the railways have been in trouble since the 1930s and 40s. In a sense, it doesn't really matter whether they're privately owned or nationalised. A lot of it doesn't work because we have the rise of the motor car. Mm. And in the future, we may have more hydrogen fuel or electric fuel motor cars, but they're going to be probably greener and cleaner yes. and maybe yes. even cheaper at the end of the day. So, yes. you know, the question is, eventually... The, the, the canals sort of moved into into the world of leisure and beauty. The question has to be, and I can't answer it, I'm only a professor, but the question dangling over everyone's head is, is there really going to be a viable future in the 21st and 22nd century for railways as we've known them and often loved them? And I don't know. It, was the privatisation done wrongly? I mean, it all very easy to, to look at it with hindsight, but that's the only way we can look at it. But the separation of the actual infrastructure, the rail, them, the railways themselves, and the operators, that does seem to have caused quite a few problems, doesn't it? It, it? it does. And there are many people who believe, you know, ideologues and libertarians who believe in a free market, who, of course, point to the most privatised railway in the world, the, the one railway that never deviated from uh, almost full-blown mm -hmm. uh, privatisation and, and really doesn't include many subsidies. And, you know, if the line isn't profitable, when it closes, of course, that's Japan. And so the free marketeers always point to Japan and, of course, those private companies, well, you know, they ushered in the bullet train in the 1960s. Um, and uh, Japan is famed for being the great innovator in uh, high speed rail. And and but on the other hand, <laughs> going around uh, the, the lines of, um, of Tokyo or any of the major conurbations in Russia, it's pretty grand. Yes. There's maybe a lot of profitability. There may be a lot of happy shareholders i'm not always convinced that <laughs> that being crammed in like a sardine at maybe half past eight or half past seven um uh, in tokyo is 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 the most comfortable um or satisfactory experience so 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 there's all that but the really big picture i think and 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 uh, you know is if britain if there's no chance of britain emulating that radical japanese approach um um are our railways really viable and and if we are moving to a world of electric cars and and you know you, there are places on the planet that are experimenting with flying vehicles and i don't know drones that can carry humans you know, 
the question I think really that's out there is, are we building in H, you know, high speed two, something that actually is going to be a super duper high speed canal? Um, mm. And I just wish, I mean, my plea would be, I wish we could strip ideology from this usual left and right, usual privatizers versus nationalizers. And if we could actually um, have a little bit more thought about where we really are in terms of that grand narrative. Now, there were people, of course, like Sir Alfred Sherman, um, who was famed when he sort of helped to co-create the Centre for Policy Studies. He was a great sort of free marketeer. He basically suggested way back in the 80s that all these railway lines should be tarmacked over um, and they should be turned into roads. So he was, you know, pretty eccentric. Mm -hmm. but, but where and how you use these different modes of transport, be it canal, um, be it uh, railway, be it air, tra you know, air traffic, um, often, what history shows you is that often politicians and entire political classes remain invested in things, in practices and in institutional arrangements, often one or 200 years after they've actually become redundant. Um, I know I talked to you about this before, but very briefly, you know, when bridges were put over the River Thames, um, the ferrymen and the lightermen were put out of a business. And, and the modern London taxi cab trade came about because people wanted to get in a cab, yeah. hackney carriage and travel, you know, across Southwark Bridge or London Bridge and all the other bridges that bloomed. London became a thing that was far more viable for taxis and there was less emphasis on 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 ferrymen crossing you the river. But boy, to pay the ferrymen off, the government had to put vast sums to buy them off. So mm. it's very difficult often for a government, even if they wanted to, you know, reform the railways or, or whatever, to buy off the unions, the interests, the pension parts. You know, it's a big deal. But politicians the world over become invested in legacy interests and legacy yes. projects which 100 or 200 years later when you look back it actually becomes sort of commie tragic and and i increasingly look at british railways and the debate around them and i wonder if we're not almost in the eye of the storm of a commie tragic uh, episode where they may already be more redundant than many of us realize i know that's terribly controversial but i do wonder well intriguing way to end that topic tim but we're going to turn to one more topic before we finish aren't we um what's that so the next subject is something that, that a lot of people have debated for a long time i remember as a kid um uh people talking about a cashless society if you remember um when i think it was diner's card came around in the late 60s and 70s this futuristic bit of plastic card that you could go into restaurants mm. or hotels and use um, and then if you also remember in the very early 80s, instead of going into a telephone box um, and putting in a 2P piece or a 10P piece, um, there were these green BT cards and you could basically store money on the card and then go into a phone box. Yes, yes. And then you, you remember that. I do um, remember. Well, so you know, when, when we were younger, Simon, you would get sort of Tomorrow's World, this futuristic programme in the BBC, talking about a future where maybe one day money 
will be transacted on these plastic cards mm. and that cash will be redundant. Now, of course, no one, particularly when they were dressed in their best tinfoil, as they often were <laughs> on, <laughs> in, um, uh, in early 70s BBC futuristic telly, no one, of course, had really thought about the internet or Google or PayPal or online banking or any of that. Mm no one was really thinking about computer terminals in everyone's home and and us banking in that way but it really is on the agenda and the reality is that and, and covid has boosted this the amount of cash that is actually being used in the economy is plummeting and it looks that by the end of this decade it looks as if we are on for about six percent of transactions being done in cash and so it seems to me that the cashless society is coming we're having ever less bank branches um there's ever more online banking um and uh people are using their magic little plastic cards to do all kinds of transactions be they credit cards or debit cards or or whatever but the world is changing and that's fine for most people but for very old much older people people of a certain disposition or, or, or age group people are very used to paying in cash this will become increasingly quite a struggle for them now the average the average person in britain is at least several miles at least a couple of miles from a bank um and if you want to go to your bank and get your cash out and pay in operating cash that's going to become a real challenge so the cashless society is coming that will may be good for the tax man uh, because people people's accounts will be more readily audited and what they've been up to will be more visible to the authorities so there's that argument but there's also this sociological dimension which um for certain groups and certain people uh could lead to all kinds of um exclusion so well, ma many it, people are actually yeah many people are not allowed to have a bank account or else don't have a bank and without a bank account you just simply cannot participate in society if there is no no cash um, That's added to which, as we've spoken about in the past, talking about um, um, central banks, I mean, clearly, if there is no cash in society, the ability of the government of the day or the banking authorities to manipulate the system is that much greater, presumably. Yeah, they can simply decide, well, they do anyway, decide the price of money, but but they have would have so much more control over it. You're absolutely right, and, and you have got, you know totalitarian regimes like china where already um you know if you misbehave then you lose in inverted commas yes. various forms of social credit i have a godson and for a long time he lived in hong kong and he traveled into china and uh he wasn't quite sure it's his first time there and he jaywalked he crossed a road mm. um without realizing that he should wait for um mm. the green person to come up to give him permission and by the time he got to the other side of the road, they'd already debited a fine from his account. Good grief. And his face was now on an electronic billboard for everyone in that street to see who had yes. performed the, you know, the misdemeanor, yes. the crime, and the amount of money that had been debited from Dis his account. Yes. Disquieting. I... I talked to a banking friend of mine a while ago with, with an idea I had. The, the problem you've got then is for some people who do not have a bank account or for various other reasons cannot do without cash. You mentioned the old-fashioned phone cards. And I was suggesting to Chapel, could you not go and get a cash card 
go into a news agent to say, I want £20 on a cash card. And then you have a card that could be used tills and everything, which will simply register how much you had left on it. And you could effectively then participate without actually having a bank account or the ability to, to use contactless or whatever. He didn't seem to think it was a very good idea. But, I, I, you know, I remember those phone cards. There's no reason to think that credit for cash couldn't be on it in the same way as it was credit for phone calls. Yeah. No, of course, you're right. And there will be, no doubt, a market. You don't need much of a market for to make what you're describing, to make that business viable. Even if just 1% of your population, you know, want that kind of card, mm. then maybe someone will supply it. If the law allows it, it will be supplied. However, of course, um, then will come the stigma of using that. Why are they using that? Mm. Why are they using cash? So there is a there's a sociological and a yes. psychological dimension here. And, and 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 what's of course happening is that people who are using cash, maybe they're in a somewhere like Dalston Market or North End Road in London, in Fulham, mm. or any other street market in Britain, and perhaps they can't, their business is not yet of the size where they can get one of those zippy um uh, uh, card readers from their bank. Yes. Um, and so they their business, maybe they're selling tomatoes or veg or fudge mm. or whatever, and they're dependent on cash and they're in communities where a lot of people still use it. Well, th there is an increasing stigma, isn't there? Um, it's almost that if you're using cash, is are you trying to hide something? So looking at the bigger picture, it does seem to me um, that, that cash will be on the way out. But the assumption that somehow um, the government will be able to control or monitor everything, or maybe it will, or maybe there'll be an unintended consequence, and maybe there will be an awful lot more digital and online fraud. Uh, let me, you know, really interesting, when Tony Blair's government wanted to introduce ID cards, of course, the most vociferous opponent was Dame Stella Remington, the former Director General of MI5. Why? Because, as she explained, um, if you want to have a national ID scheme, as they have in France, you may have a population of 50, 60, 70, 80 million people, but within 10 or 20 years, expect there to be probably 80, 90 or 100 million ID yes. <laughs> cards in circulation yes. and forgeries and for the central computer to be hacked. Yes. You know, criminals will find a way. The state is not impervious. Government yes. records. I know this comes to surprise Simon. Government records are not always as um, as as utopianly clean and pristine as, as you might see. So the point you could stands, you could knock me down with a feather, Tim. I know. There we are. But the, the point is, uh, even if we go to a cashless society, um, uh, assuming it's not going to be as totalitarian as uh, as China, um, it will bring its own risks of criminality mm. and database hack and the rest of it. So there's no get out of jail card. Um, but it will set new new conundrums for policymakers. Tim, thank you. Three fascinating topics dealt with intriguingly by Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, I hope you'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. That's it, though, for The Bigger Picture. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.